is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about random act of kindness on our show. And if you've been the beneficiary of a random act of kindness, give us a call at 844-OAS-TALK to record your story. Again, that's 1-844-OAS-TALK. And each week, we'll feature the most moving of them on the air. This week, we hear a local TV station's report about two police officers in Cedar Point, Texas. Officer Gower pulled over a truck in this gas station parking lot for an expired registration and malfunctioning light. When I was up there talking to the driver, that's when I realized there was uh, three kids in the back seat without car seats. Gower hadn't met the man before, but heard about him from other officers. And I remember hearing the story about you know, he's saving money, he's living in a car, he's trying to get his family down. So we called in Officer Hawkins, who had talked with the man just a few weeks ago. They were living in a hotel, and um, he said all of his money was going to that at, the, at this time. In that moment, Gower and Hawkins made a judgment call. Giving them three tickets, it wasn't going to do any good. Those kids were still going to have to be driven somewhere, somehow, with no car seats. And then we just kind of stepped off to the side and said we, we need to kind of do the right thing and get these people some car seats. They put their money together, and while Gower talked to the driver, Hawkins drove to Walmart. A manager inside helped Officer Hawkins pick out the car seats and even gave him a discount. So I recognized some of the management staff and told them immediately what I wanted to do. She walked back with me and helped me. He came back with three pink car seats for the girls ages one, three, and four. Then Hawkins and Gower, fathers themselves, helped put them in the truck, giving a gift instead of a ticket. Proving the power of the badge is made stronger by the hearts who wear them. And that's a great story. And we hear the bad cop stories. And here on Our American Stories, we like to do the good ones, too. And we won't shy away from the bad ones, folks, because a bad cop can do a lot of harm. But my goodness, all the good ones. And it's, it's just the bias of the news. If it bleeds, it leads. And that's what they do. Uh, but good, good work for that local TV station in, in Texas for covering that story. And uh, now we're going to transition to our This Day in History segment brought to us by Hillsdale College. And on This Day in History, in the year 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev was selected as the new leader of the Soviet Union. Many folks remember Gorbachev's name for President Ronald Reagan demanding that Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. But many will rightly remember how Reagan's strength and Gorbachev's Democrat reforms famously brought down that wall and the Soviet Union. But there's another lesser-known story that contributed to both crashing down that you just have to hear. September 16th started off like any other day for the employees at Randall's Grocery Store. They arrived at 5 a.m. and began prepping the produce and wiping down the cash registers. The smell of baked goods filled the aisles as the employees began the endless process of stocking and rotating thousands of products on hundreds of shelves. It was really just an average day in an average grocery store. Until it wasn't. The boss showed up, anxious and frazzled. Apparently, some bigwig was in town visiting the nearby space center, and they had just received word he was about to drop by the grocery store for an unscheduled tour. Who could it be? Some muckety-muck from the home office? A shareholder, maybe Mr. Randall himself, coming by for a surprise inspection. The boss barked orders to make sure the place was tip-top, and the employees took things up a notch. A few hours later, the store was sparkling, and the mystery guest arrived. Whoever he was, he didn't work for Randall's. 
Looking outside through the glass, the employees could see that this was clearly a very powerful, very important man. He had an entourage with security, and the media followed close behind. He was smiling for the cameras, confident and sure. But then he walked through those automatic doors, and everything changed. The man looked as if he'd seen a ghost. He wandered up and down the aisles, slowly at first, and then with increased agitation. His expression seemed to switch back and forth between fascinated and demoralized. He paused to stare in wonderment at the fresh fish, the meat selections, and the produce department. He was enraptured, peppering the customers with questions. At one point, the man asked the store manager, what type of advanced education was required to run a store as magnificent as this? The manager blushed. The employees had never seen anything like it. By all accounts, though, it was the sight of frozen pudding pops that left the visitor in utter disbelief. <laughs> like an indigenous member of some forgotten tribe deep in the Amazon who glanced up one day and saw a 747 flying overhead, this well-dressed visitor, this highly educated, undeniably successful, and clearly important individual was left slack-jawed by pudding pops. There were just so many <laughs> in such a rich variety of flavors. By the time he boarded his private plane... He was unable to speak to his staff. His world had been turned upside down in an instant. You see, the man who visited the grocery store that fateful day in 1989 had just been elected to the new Soviet parliament. And in all his years, he had never seen so much food in one place. He later said, When I saw those shelves, crammed with hundreds, thousands of cans, cartons, and goods of every possible sort, for the first time, I felt quite frankly sick with despair for the Soviet people. That such a potentially super-rich country as ours has been brought to a state of such poverty, it is terrible to think of it. And just like that, one man's loyalty to communism was completely destroyed. <laughs> he returned home and promptly left the party and started making reforms. And then, just two years later, under his presidency, the Soviet Union would dissolve. True, Ronald Reagan told Gorbachev to tear down this wall, but back in 1989, that wall was still standing. And who knows, it might still be there today if not for the hard-working employees at a Randall's grocery store in Clear Lake, Texas, <laughs> who kept the shelves fully stocked. So another Soviet, a Soviet named Boris Yeltsin, could come face-to-face -face with a freezer full of pudding pops and change the history of the world. And that's the voice, of course, of Mike Rowe. What a story. This Day in History brought to you by Hillsdale College. Tear down this wall and puddin' pops. More after this. Records all day 
with big ambitions of when I could play. My parents taught me what life was about, so I grew up the type they warned me about. They said my friends were just an unruly mob, and I should get a haircut and get a real job. This is Lee Habib, and it's Friday. And we love playing that George Thorogood song and talking about first jobs. And today we're going to cover three. And Scott Viverman, Magic Johnson, and Lloyd Blankfein. Three very different guys. A professor, a ball player, and a banker. Well, let's take a listen. Here is our first clip. From our professor, Scott Viverman, who teaches about the radio industry at DePaul University. And he was interviewed by one of his students, Joey Cortez. My first job, uh, this is back when um, parents would allow their children to have paper routes. This is back when people not only had papers delivered, but often those papers were, were delivered by children. So uh, I used to get up in the morning. My papers would be waiting for me at the end of the driveway. I would have to wrap all the papers. The worst was when it rained because you had to put them all in plastic. So I had to wrap the papers, put them in plastic, put them in my bag, get my 10-speed bike out, and then ride around the neighborhoods in the dark, mind you, and deliver my papers without a phone, no way to contact my parents. Um, So fortunately, I never got abducted or killed or anything weird like that. Um, It was definitely an interesting experience learning to get up when I didn't want to get up. I learned to get motivated. I learned to be responsible because I not only had to deliver the papers, but then I also had to go and collect money. This is before like online payments and things. So I literally had to go around and collect the money from the people. Um, And of course, they would like sometimes I'd know they'd be home but they wouldn't answer the door because they didn't have the money or whatever so uh yeah it was a really uh eye-opening learning experience as a 10 11 12 year old kid to be delivering papers at six o'clock in the morning before school and then having to go around and ask adults for money afterwards so I definitely think it taught me some level of responsibility that a lot of my friends didn't have Uh, it taught me how to talk with how to deal with adults at a very young age um, which i also think has been an important skill to have over the years Yep, and that was my first job i mean my real first job was at roy rogers but my first job was as a paper boy with paul biatini and i was the collections guy (laughs) he did delivery and i collected the money because he couldn't talk to people and he hated it he hated it Collections must be tough in Jersey it's very tough in (laughs) jersey (laughs) yeah but you know what i i just figured i would use I would use my youth and my desperate nature to get it. And you so have I had cute cheeks. I had cute help? cheeks and I just yeah. made them feel guilty. I just made them feel guilty and I begged. I begged. You're going to have to go to confession over this. That's right. And at the tips, it was all about the tips too. So you had to put the paper in the right place. So my, my buddy would just throw it, at the end, throw it at the end of the driveway. I would just get really mad at him because I'd say, no, just walking up to the door, we get better tips. <laughs> so anyway, that's, uh, that's great job by Joey. Let's listen to, uh, uh, Viverman told, uh, will tell Joey how he, he got into radio. My first job in radio was at 92.5 WDEK in DeKalb, Illinois for $5.50 an hour. And uh, I got that job. So I was in school. I put together a demo tape. This is back when we still had tapes. So I put together this demo tape. I sent it out to like a hundred radio stations. They were the first radio station, maybe the only radio station that really offered me an actual job. I went out, I interviewed, eventually I ended up moving there because it was just too long of a drive. And at that radio station, I got to do everything. So I did radio sales. 
I produced my own commercials. I DJed on the FM station. I engineered on the AM station. I used to do Chicago Bulls games on the AM station. So in that, like, eight months or so that I was at WDEK, I, I really learned more about how to do radio in the real world than I ever did in broadcasting school. I learned a lot of theory in broadcasting school, but the actually being at a radio station and doing live radio and being prepared for anything, um, that's really what I got from that experience. And that's what we learn time and again. The younger people work, the better, and nothing replaces work for your learning curve. Can you believe that too from a professor saying that he learned more on the job I than know. in school? It's something, isn't it? <laughs> Adam Carolla had a pretty famous story where him and Dr. Drew were teaching or giving a speech at a famous college and uh, somebody got up and asked them about uh, like getting a communications degree. And they said, ah, it's worthless. Don't even bother. It turns out they were speaking at a communications college. <laughs> and the entire student body was there hearing this message of don't Oops. bother with communications. Just get into radio. Be an intern or something like that. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> yeah. So let's hear from Magic Johnson. Let's hear from, from him well, about his first job. And also, let's hear him on his parents. First of all, I, I, I was blessed to have uh, both my parents who instilled their values in me and always pushed all of us in terms of education and also that anything in life we were going to get or receive, we had to work very hard for it. And they set the example. I saw my dad go to work for General Motors 30 years. My mother worked for the school cafeteria. So when you come from a family of 10, six sisters, three brothers, and you wanted to do something like go to the movies, you already knew the answer was going to be no. So coming from Michigan, it snowed a lot. So my dad said, I'm going to help you, though, even though I said no. I'm going to help you get the money so that you can go to the movie. There's the shovel, the rake, and the lawnmower. Go at it. So I went door to door and knocking on people's door. Uh, I was praying for snowstorms all the time. (laughs) And uh, sure enough, in Michigan, we got a lot of them. And so I used to dig people out of their driveways. I used to shovel uh, snow and then also during the fall, rake leaves, and of course in the summer, cut people's lawn. Uh, My father had another job, which was a trash hauling service. So we used to go by people's homes and pick up their trash. And um, this is what really turned my life around, this lesson here. So I would only work with him in the wintertime on Saturdays because I had to go to school. But on that Saturday, it was like a snow blizzard, and it was must have been 10 below zero in, in, in Lansing, Michigan. My job was to get outside the, outside the barrels and pick up all the loose trash. And so this day was so cold that I picked up just enough, threw it on the trash truck, and ran back in and jumped in the cabin. By the time I closed the door, he had grabbed me, <laughs> drug me back through the snow, and said, Irvin, if you do this job halfway... You're going to practice basketball halfway. You're going to do your, your homework halfway. He said, you have to do every job 
better than anybody else. So, so I became a perfectionist after that day. So everything I did after that was at the best level, highest level, and I owe all of that to my dad. So now, as I'm playing basketball, I became a perfectionist. I wanted to do everything the right way. And as a father, I want to be a father the right way, on and on and on. So I thank my dad for every life lesson. I, I, even today, he's my number one hero. You know, I admire him. I look up to him. And the only reason I'm sitting here today is because of both my mom and dad. I have her smile. <laughs> and so I want to save the world like her. And I'm, I'm, I'm tough and strong and a workaholic like my father. Mike. And there you have it. I don't think you could say it better. And then last but not least, the banker. Lloyd Blankfein's story is told on Job Creators Network's great website, informationstation.org. Lloyd Blankfein is the CEO of investment bank Goldman Sachs. Corporate events and conference calls didn't run in his blood from the start, but New York always did. You see, Blankfein was born in the Bronx to a mailman and a receptionist who raised him and his sister in the Linden Houses, a public housing project in Brooklyn. From an early age, there were two things on Blankfein's mind. His favorite baseball team, the New York Yankees, and the best way to make a living. This led the young fan of baseball to old Yankee Stadium, which is in the Bronx. Where he found his first job. Oh my goodness, is this a great one? A concession vendor at Yankee Stadium. I would have paid to do that. Selling soft drinks and peanuts in the upper decks was his first major responsibility, and Blankfein realized he had to take it seriously. The job was all commission-based, meaning no guarantee of personal income. This meant walking up and down the bleachers for a 10 or 11% commission on a soda selling for 25 cents, a profit of less than 3 cents per soda by Blankfein's estimation, but he kept climbing for extra cash and the independence that came from it. It's character, character building for yourself, Blankfein finally recalls. And this all guides him to this day. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're about to do a report on hipsters, because they're everywhere, and we want to help you solve your neighborhood hipster problems. And if you're a hipster, and you're thinking of getting out of the lifestyle, we're here for you. You know, you don't have to give your name, your location, just think of it as sort of HA, Hipsters Anonymous, you know, and we'll, we'll help you. We'll coach you out of the life. It's okay. We have a bench. We have a bench. But before we do that, we need to get to, well, Jesse's world. Let me get my shoes. What's happening to my shoes? A University of Connecticut student faces criminal charges over a confrontation with a campus food court manager who wouldn't let him buy macaroni and cheese with bacon and jalapeno peppers. A nine-minute obscenity-laced video clip posted online shows freshman Luke Gotti 
arguing with and eventually shoving the manager inside of the university's cafeteria. Police said that Gotti had been refused service for carrying an open container of alcohol. After shoving the manager, Gotti is attacked by another employee and arrested by a police officer. Here, the spoiled brat can be heard crying for his shoes after the arrest. Let me get my shoes. What's happened to my shoes? Miami police arrested a 21-year-old student by the name of John Harrington for pretending lines of powdered sugar was cocaine. Inside the University of Miami dorms, administrative searches are commonplace and students are warned days ahead of time so they can get rid of their bongs, beer bottles, and hot plates beforehand. Harrington thought he'd have some fun with the search. Before inspectors arrived, the 21-year-old English major left lines of white powder on the coffee table and the kitchen counter, a rolled-up dollar bill, and seven white pills. Harrington figured everyone would get a good chuckle out of it and move on. Instead, Harrington ended up handcuffed, dragged to jail, and charged with felony cocaine possession. A would-be thief who made chicken noises during a robbery attempt faces new charges, according to police in Concord, in Concord, New Hampshire. Officers were called to a Sears where employees said a man tried to steal DeWalt's drills valued at $900. When the employees tried to stop the man, he made chicken noises and fled on foot, leaving the drills behind. What's wrong, McFly? Chicken! Shortly after, authorities released the video to the public. They received several calls identifying the man as 21-year-old Nathan Lesage. Police said Lesage faces charges of attempted theft. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. (laughs) Great job tonight, Jesse. Good stuff. It's good stuff. And you, I am going to say it every night for the next 10 years. You need help. (laughs) But that's why we love you. And now it's time for our hipster segment of the week. Hurricane Sandy, a devastating event leaving destruction in its wake. But one species of New Yorker has proven remarkably well adapted to such circumstances. The Brooklyn Hipster. Where ordinary citizens struggle with gas shortages, traffic gridlock, and absence of public transportation... Hipsters' vintage bikes and skateboards allow them to move about freely. With food in short supply, hipsters rely on their skills in salami curing and artisanal pickling. (laughs) Their vintage denim is extremely durable, and if new clothes are needed, they can knit. When heat fails, hipsters' ample facial hair provides warmth, and in extreme cold, they can deploy their hoodies to remain cozy. If electricity is not available, hipsters have the ability to go acoustic at will. And the lack of fresh water for washing and bathing, definitely not a problem. The Brooklyn Hipster, one of nature's miraculous adaptations to the modern world. Well, at least they're independent. That's right. It could be the Brooklyn Harlem hipster. Uh, that's right. Or the Denver hipster. I was in Denver recently. Oh, they were all over the place. It's, They're everywhere. It's a massive <laughs> Modern day renaissance men. Oh, indeed. <laughs> so does this sound like someone you know? And by the way, according to the public policy polling, only 16% of Americans actually like hipsters. <laughs> An even worse popularity rating than Donald Trump, Jeb Bush, and Hillary Clinton, if you could possibly imagine a group of people less popular than them. We just found them. And by the way, Dictionary.com's definition seems, well, let's just say unsatisfactory. And, uh, well, I don't even want to get into that. So I want to dig into a a little commentary that Alex pulled up. And, uh, well, again, it gets back to that whole idea of giving up the lifestyle. And uh, the guy's name was Derek Loy. And he's been living the hipster lifestyle for the past two years. 
But after his bank account began to dwindle, he reverted to, well, mainstream customs. And here was his uh, confessional that he post on a blog. I tried my best, said Loy. I really did. I was juicing regularly. Juicing? <laughs> juicing. <laughs> Eating local and organic. It's not steroids. I was oh. doing my best to only drink craft beer. Well, naturally. Unfortunately, <laughs> my bank account just couldn't handle hipster living. <laughs> Loy said the added stress on his bank account caused him to revert to a more conventional lifestyle that he enjoyed in his pre-hipster years. Quote, all the stuff I was doing was great. Kale salads and IPAs were delicious. <laughs> but, but, you know, what's also great? Cheap stuff. Bud Light. Frozen chicken. Pizza. A Coke. Was I saving a lot of money on clothes? Absolutely. I mean, I was buying stuff from thrift stores that homeless people probably would turn down. <laughs> and because I rarely showered, my water bill had never been lower. But those discounts pale in comparison to the money I save when I go to Kroger to buy a half-gallon tub of ice cream instead of chive and lentil-flavored Froyo from Whole Foods. <laughs> Lloyd said he also enjoyed hobbies that he wasn't able to partake in the past two years, including golf, being able to talk about football with friends, as well as just, well... The pleasure of a cleanly shaven face. Quote, do I miss hanging out at a brewery, drinking with a scarf, and talking, <laughs> <laughs> and talking about Radiohead tattoos? Apps? Actually, no. No, I don't. I'm finally free to go to Buffalo Wild Wings and watch sports on Sunday while drinking a giant bud, said Loy ecstatically. The ironic thing is, if I didn't make this change, I would have been close to living out my living out of my van, which would have made me a god amongst hipsters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you know somebody like Derek struggling again to get out of the hipster lifestyle, well, you know, go ahead, give a call. And you know, have you had friends? You know, the, the, the kind the kind of guy who like a band comes out, they release their first record. And it sells like 50,000 copies. And then the second record comes out, it gets more popular. And what do they say always, Jesse? What they, do they sold say? out. They sold out. Right. I'm done with them. I'm <laughs> so finished. over. They're over. Done. Done. So mainstream, man. So mainstream, dude. It's hard to find a hipster because anytime you ask, uh, you know, do you consider yourself a hipster? No. No. No, the, no hipster considers himself to be a, a hipster. Not. That just kind of ruins the point, I guess. It's one of the first principles of hipster, hipsterdom. Thou shalt not admit. Yeah. <laughs> the first rule about being a hipster is not admit, admitting you're a hipster. Well, I have got this T-shirt that my wife got me, and it's a bear, and it's, it's got its arms and claws reared, and it says, don't feed the hipsters. <laughs> well, when we come back, we're going to get a little more serious, and we're going to talk about, well, one mom's struggle to take on a political machine at a giant community college. Again, in Illinois. We're not picking on the state. It just so happens that, well, Illinois has got real problems, as we learned from Hillary Gowans. And so we're going to dig into this remarkable lady's story. And uh, I met her uh, about three or four months ago in Chicago. And you would have never picked her as the kind of dynamo that would actually take on a multi-million dollar fraud being perpetuated under the auspices of educating students in this county. One of the, I think it's the biggest. Is it the biggest county college in, it's, in it's Chicago? It's the third biggest in uh, Chicago, the third biggest public college. Even after the University of Illinois at Chicago, it's a massive community college. Yeah, and this lady basically staged a coup on the board and took it over. A, 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 a mom. And this is a great story. And mom power, we're going to dig into that on this show regularly. The power of moms to just, well... 
change the world. I don't get in the way of my wife when she's got a got a, a grudge. Just get out of the way. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We got Jesse here, Alex, and Greg. When we come back, one mom against the machine. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we love stories here about David versus Goliath, about small versus big, stories of average folks, especially moms, challenging the status quo, challenging local government, challenging bureaucracies, doing what's right for their families, challenging their own government, who work for them, but often forget it. A few months ago, I met a real-life David. I was seated next to her by chance, actually. It was the last seat in the house. There was a meeting in Chicago for Adam Angievsky's Transparency Army, American Transparency. She didn't say much. She seemed like, well, just an ordinary mom in an ordinary suburb of Chicago. We made some small talk. And then I discovered she was the person of honor at this particular event. She had stayed at home, raised her family. She's a classical violinist a director at the local ballet. She's fought the height disadvantage all of her life, coming in at just 4 feet 11 inches. Her name? Kathy Hamilton. She decided to run for elected office to make her community a better place. And she won. But Kathy had no idea what she'd signed up for. This is her story. One mom versus the machine. Brought to you by our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. When Kathy was elected a trustee of her local community college, the College of DuPage, they didn't provide her any training for her new job. But being a certified public accountant, she tried to make sense of the financial information that she had access to. I saw significant issues with the, uh, with the auditing, I saw significant issues with uh, needless cash accumulation, upwards of $300 million. And there was a, an issue of um, the request for a $20 million grant that looked like pay for play to me for an unsubstantiated, unexplained uh, need for a building for $50 million. Not a great sign, but Kathy was a newbie. There had to be some explanations, she figured. She would just ask them about it. My idea was to go in front of the board and explain things and lay them out the same way I did when I was working as, a, as an analyst for Fortune 500 companies and as a CPA, just explain things, and of course people would understand. But actually, um, when I did that, I got censured. <laughs> 
So that didn't work out very well. Not much was working out well. She was standing alone on almost every vote, her vote versus the other seven. She didn't want it to be this way. All she wanted was to work together to make their community a better place. Here's Adam Andrzejewski of the Watchdog Group, American Transparency. Moms like Kathy purely and simply want to straighten out the system. They don't go into politics to hand off a contract to their buddy. They don't go into politics to procure a job for their friends or their family. When Kathy discovered that the employee running the college's radio station paid his own consulting firm $440,000 for equipment and services he never even provided, she asked for an independent review of the station's finances. She was ignored, and then she was kicked off the audit committee, despite being the only CPA on the whole board. They even asked her if she really was a CPA. They thought she was just a stay-at-home mom. Their words. I was shocked. Because, you know what? It's, you're never just a stay-at-home mom. Being a mom is the most important job there is for a woman. I believe, because you are changing the world every time you work with your child and you support your child. All of their personal attacks started to weigh heavily on her. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. Some of my family told me to quit. Some of my friends said, I am so proud of you for sticking up for people that can't stick up for themselves. So on either side, I had a little bit of pressure. Kathy knew she had to do something different. Her reform measures were being voted down by every other board member. The machine wasn't going to bring about change. At that moment, instead of taking this sort of studious approach to cooperating and, you know, just sort of a scholastic approach to making change, I had to up my game and promote protests in a sense and insurrection. So that was kind of a difficult step for me to take. It was time to rage against the machine. Adam did what he does best, filing Freedom of Information Act requests to force them to open up their books, starting with President Dr. Robert Bruder's compensation package, which had never been disclosed, despite being a public, taxpayer-supported college. It was a battle to get the contract. The president did not want his contract released. The board had been told over many years that that was a private contract. They couldn't talk about it. The president had a contract of total compensation worth $500,000 per year. That's what started uh, a great amount of public attention. Making more than the governor of Illinois, his own boss, more than any governor in the country, more than the president of the United States and for a community college president. No wonder they wanted to hide it. The $500,000 number doesn't even include the special perks Bruder gave to himself. The college paid for his membership to a private shooting club and a lot of fine dining and drinking at a French restaurant he opened up on the community college campus. It might be the only French restaurant on any campus across the country, and that French restaurant lost roughly $2 million over its first four years of operation. Uh, So this president, Robert Bruder, not only developed this upscale French restaurant, complete with a world-class wine cellar, and hired a French sommelier, but also it wasn't enough for him. He opened up house accounts. 
and between the president of the school and his administrators and and actually other trustees on the board, they racked up nearly $300,000 of expenses billed off against taxpayer students and the scholarship fund at this Waterloo French restaurant. Adam's American transparency kept going. We found a strategy delineated to the board to bring political support to then incumbent governor Pat Quinn in exchange for procuring a $20 million state construction grant. From the broke state of Illinois into the College of DuPage, you already had $200 million in its bank account. Nothing to see here. Bruder was just joining in on the time-honored tradition of pay-for-play in Illinois. And then there was his email outlining that with the government grant, the college should bank it until we figure out how to use it and then build something anything, any way to get more taxpayer money. Rarely do you get a peek inside of the system uh, where they put it in writing. And so this is why this was so unique and so valuable. So unique that pressure was building on him big time. Bruder had no choice but to resign. Not that resigning was all that bad. The board of trustees, except for Kathy, voted to give him a nice little package. He was given a 752 thousand dollar golden handshake to leave no amount of public shame was going to stop the machine from paying back one of their own the friend who gave them lucrative contracts to their private businesses and french meals on the house the board even went so far as to naming a building after him as part of his golden handshake because i've got a golden ticket i've got a golden twinkle in But they messed up. The golden package was granted without public discussion and without a public vote, all violating the Open Meetings Act. Once exposed, they were forced to vote on all of it again, this time before the public. The machine tried to make it so that as few members of the public as possible would be there. We had to win a court case to move it from a classroom that seated about 30 people, where the administration would reserve half of the seats for themselves to a room to accommodate the large crowd. We won that court case at significant cost to our organization, and they sat the room for 300. And nobody thought we could get 300 people to show up to the meeting. And 500 people showed up. 75 speakers took to the microphone. And only one of them supported the old majority on that board and the administration. 75 speakers in opposition and one in support. And still the board publicly re-voted for his $750,000 golden parachute. Seven to one. It was clear to Kathy that the machine was never going to listen. Not to her, not to taxpayers, not to anyone. There was only one option left. The brute force of elections to kick them out. Remember that Kathy had zero political experience before she ran for office. Now she was recruiting three reform-minded candidates to challenge incumbents so that they can take back the board. I created a, uh, a slate, and it, those individuals were termed the clean slate. And with a lot of elbow grease and work and um, fundraising, the clean slate won. And on April 7th, um, we formed the new majority at the College of DuPage. The new reform majority, with Kathy as chairwoman, recently voided Bruder's golden parachute and is passing absolutely radical reforms, at least for higher education. We have put in place uh, 
in the budget a 5% property decrease and a $5 tuition decrease, which is pretty much unheard of. It was a long road to get here for this ordinary mom, but a worthy road. A road we're all called to go on. The only thing that can happen is failure. And then after you fail and you pick yourself up and you start all over again, you cannot be afraid to fail. You will fail. You will fail and then you will succeed. There's nothing wrong with that. One mom versus the machine. This is Alex Cortez with Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib. You're listening to Our American Story. And that's Bon Jovi. And he's right. Who says you can't go home again? And that's the subject of this week's You Can Go Home Again segment. We're going to feature the stories of two men. Stuart Stevens, who you'll be hearing from in a moment. Stuart led the failed presidential bid of Mitt Romney in 2012. But he's also a writer. Wrote for Northern Exposure, that quirky hit show, way back when. And also writes books, articles for publications like the New York Times, and has a new book out that's fascinating. But first, we wanted to talk about this man's return home. That's the golden voice of Don Henley, the song The Heart of the Matter, a huge hit for Henley back in 1989. Henley, who most of you know, is the member of the Eagles, the member, that golden voice of the band, and also its drummer, is releasing his first solo album in 15 years, and a beautiful piece on CBS's Sunday Morning by Anthony Mason. We meet the singer out on the water under the bald cypress tree of Cotto Lake in East Texas, where a young Don Henley caught his very first fish. A bass. Just small, you know, not, not a real big one, but it, it was exciting. A bass. That's what Don Henley remembered. Asked to describe this place where he grew up, which resembles the bayous of Louisiana much more than the plains of West Texas, Henley had this to say. You can't really describe it. You have to bring them here. Mm-hmm. I just tell them that it's a magical place and you've never seen anything like it. After years on the road with the Eagles, the 68-year-old singer, songwriter, and musician is spending more time back in that magical place he described, near his hometown of Linden, Texas. His new solo album, called Cass County, is a nod to that native turf and to his musical roots. After singing the, the Eagles material, some of which we've been singing for over 40 years now, yeah. I really need some other songs to sing. Even some of my solo stuff is three decades old now. I want new songs to sing, and I, I have things inside of me that I need to get out. Returning to his roots, he's joined on this new album by country stars like Dolly Parton and Martina McBride. It's the kind of music he listened to growing up in Linden, 
with his father, an auto parts dealer, and his mother, a teacher. At Lyndon's old American Legion Hall, now a theater, where Henley made his very first public appearance, he stopped with Anthony Mason to talk about his musical career, which launched way back in the high school band. I didn't start out playing drums. I started out, for some reason, on the trombone, because they needed more trombonists. How were you on the trombone? Mediocre, at best. You still play trombone occasionally? No, I didn't touch the thing. Smart that he didn't, because he switched to the drums, and he formed a band with some local high school buddies. Their lives would change in 1968 when the band had a chance encounter with a young singer named Kenny Rogers. We were in a clothing store in Dallas, Texas on McKinney Avenue. It was called the Electric Rocking Horse. We were buying bell-bottom pants and Nehru jackets and stuff. (laughs) And Kenny Rogers was there? He was there because there was a really beautiful girl working there. Rogers agreed to produce the band's debut album in Los Angeles. That's where Henley would meet Glenn Frey, who was recording on the same label. Together, Fry and Henley would go off and join the backing band for a pretty famous singer in her own right, Linda Ronstadt. But it was clear early on that these two young writers, these two musicians, had bigger ambitions. Well, we loved Linda, and we loved her, what she was doing musically, but we wanted our own band, especially Glenn. I mean, he really had a plan. He wanted to put a band together that had four guys in it who could all sing. And boy, could they sing, all four of them, and could they play. The Eagles formed in 1971 and would become the best-selling American band of that decade. And their greatest hits album? Well, it's the best-selling record of all time. Their recent tour was built around a revealing documentary, History of the Eagles, which you must see. Get it on Netflix. The last tour grossed a whopping $250 million. Asked if he could ever imagine the Eagles tour ever ending, Henley had this to say. Yeah, I can. Mm -hmm. And I'll be okay with that. I mean, I I don't really like the limelight. You know, I I never have. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I have to sell this album. And his new album is a return home musically for Henley. Those early years of the Eagles featured what many would call California country classics. Like this one, written by a young Henley and a young Fry. Henley recently had this to say about his musical roots to Rolling Stone. Quote, I'm associated with California a lot because of that other band that I play in. But I really and truly was born and raised in Cass County, Texas. I'm a southerner, a Texan, he said. I have ancestors in Tennessee, Mississippi, and Georgia. So this is a natural progression for me. It's not me trying to do the Don Henley country album. It's who I am. It's where I come from. Resuming his own successful solo career has meant returning to where he came from. Henley owns the local barber shop in his old hometown of Linden and a few other buildings, too. And he was asked if he was trying to hold on to something. You know, there's that great quote from T.S. Eliot. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to return where we started. Uh-huh and know the place for the first time. Fast approaching 70, Henley still has dreams. That songs like his latest country ballad, When I Stop Dreaming with Dolly Parton, finds an audience. And he has an even bigger dream that does not involve his musical or his professional life. My big dream that I hope to accomplish in the next few years is 
to have a cornfield like my father had. That was my field of dreams when I was growing up. And you could lie on your back and look up through the tassels to, at the sky. I don't think I've ever had a sense of well-being to equal that. I'll stop loving you This is Lee Habib with Our American Story. We'll be back in just a minute with Stuart Stevens. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to Our American Stories. You've just heard the story of Don Henley and him returning home to his roots. And joining me is Stuart Stevens, his newest book, The Last Season, A Father, A Son, and A Lifetime of College Football, is a return of home of a sorts, too. Stuart grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. He's worked in many political campaigns in the United States and abroad, including Mitt Romney's loss in 2012. The author of five previous books, he has also written extensively for television, including Northern Exposure. His writing has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Esquire, and The Atlantic, among others. He is a columnist for The Daily Beast. Stuart, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, buddy. Before we begin, and before we dig into the book, you heard that piece on Don Henley, and it's always been my experience that many a writer always dreamed of being either an athlete or a musician. And uh, tell me about your early ambitions. Uh, was music one of them? I can say unequivocally, if I had any musical talent, it is all that I would do. <laughs> uh, the same, if I had any athletic talent, it's all I would have done. Um, I was one of those kids who, out of frustration of having no musical talent, uh, in high school, I put on, uh, uh, like, uh, we would have dances and I would organize bands and put on these shows. I actually was very good at it. You know, I made a, what seemed like a lot of money, you know, like so a promoter, you were doing it. I was were, like a promoter. A promoter. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had great visions of being a promoter and Jackson had a lot of talent. In fact, there's a high school friend of mine, um, named Taylor Kitchens, who was a sort of a musical phenom who's just published his first book called Yard Wars. He was uh, Barry Hanna's nephew, the, uh, writer, the, great, writer. the yep. great writer who was here at Ole Miss for years. Um, and there was a lot of kids. Uh, Taylor um, uh, was one of them. There's another guy named Fingers Taylor who played the harmonica player who played with Jimmy Buffett for a million years. And they all played in these bands that we had in high school. Um, so uh, th- th- I would love that, love to do that. That's great. That's great. Let's talk. Let's dig into the book because it's uh, I, I wasn't expecting it from a guy who just come out of a presidential campaign. Normally what people do in presidential campaigns, and I have many friends who've run them and been in them, is they say, this is my last one. And then they do another one because I think in the end, it's a bit of an addictive 
thing, the excitement and the life. Uh, talk about the loss that set up this book. I want to get you back in the place emotionally you were right after you heard the news that Mitt Romney's presidential bid had failed. Well, um, I felt uh, a great uh, sadness, and I also felt uh, very responsible for it. I felt like I'd really let down someone who I'd really come to admire greatly and care for him and his family a great deal. So for me, it was very personal. Uh, On some level, I knew that it was, I felt, a loss for the country. Um, But my immediate sense was a sense of um, letting someone down who had trusted you. Um, You know, one of the great things about Mitt Romney uh, is he he, he always is toughest on himself, um, is always the first to blame himself. Um, he, He always finds humor in any situation and is also very realistic about where a situation is. You know, if you look at throughout his life, everyone who's really worked with Mitt um, has enjoyed and found that experience rewarding, um, be it uh, in his business world, be it in his church world, be it when he did the Olympics uh, in, in, in governor's uh, office. You know, most of these guys in his business, Bain, Democrats, they're Massachusetts mm-hmm. Democrats. That's know. right, and a, a lot of them supported him for president because they just knew he was such an exceptional person. Um, and you see this uh, now that uh, he's lost how he's conducted himself. Um, he's extraordinarily positive. Um, he he uh, he's a happy person. There's not a bitter bone in his body. Um, and his concern after that race uh, was for those of us who had worked in the race. Uh, to make sure that uh, uh, that he knew that we had done all that we could um, and to try to help those that needed other jobs and also to reach out to those who had supported him around the country uh, to thank them, which I, I thought was extraordinary. That is telling. extraordinary. I wanted to start, and I do this often w- with writers, Stuart. I'm going to be reading from their book because you worked hard on it. So uh, here's what you wrote. Walking to Mitt Romney's hotel room on election night, down a hallway that wasn't long enough, I found myself asking the sorts of probing questions that an industry of self-help experts argue are essential to a well-led life. When was the last time I'd really been happy? What was it that I really cared about in my life? Did you have answers to those questions right then, Stuart? No, not at all. And... You know, to be honest, I'd avoided those kind of questions. Um, I, I'd found in politics, and I'd worked in the Bush campaigns where we won, um, I, I think something that people experience in politics and probably sports, too, that the pain of losing is far greater than the joy of winning. Um, but winning, I think, uh, doesn't force you to come to grips with these kind of questions. And... Uh, I had always thought that these were the kind of questions that losers asked themselves instead of celebrating. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, uh, I didn't run from it. Um, and I really tried to come to grips with it. Um, and the speed that you live at in a presidential campaign and how all-consuming it is, is very difficult to realize. The degree to which a presidential campaign is different than any other experience in politics uh, is, is sort of like from junior high to the pros. And I think you're seeing that now with these candidates running for president. 
um, where they had no idea how tough it was. And it, it really is like jumping out of a car at, you know, 100 miles an hour um, when it's over. And uh, I knew that I w- had admit one, I wouldn't have gone into government. That's it's not what I do. Um, not that he would have asked me, uh, but uh, I really tried to come to grips with this um, and not to, to run from that sort of um, pain, really, to be honest. And that's what led me to uh, to this book and to thinking about what it was that I had really enjoyed um, and, and also a sense of time. You know, my father was turning 95 that December. I had turned 60 during the campaign, uh, both of which seemed sort of unimaginable to me. Um, and this rumor that we might be mortal was perhaps, you know, ringing hitting true. You, hitting you a little it might, bit. Might be, you know, yeah. could, could be something to that. Um, and uh, that led me to this uh, realization that this was something that I could go out with my dad and my mom and try to recapture this sense that uh, something we had done that was very special. And that thing, by the way, that they had done was, well, to rekindle the passion that he and his dad and his family had for Ole Miss football. And this book is, is in a sense, both a, a retrospective look at his life in the past and a, and a, and a look forward simultaneously and that's what was so interesting about the book it's a memory book but it's also a book about the future and uh you did something unusual what did you ask your parents to do where were they living at the time and what was their reaction well my parents uh you know my father's uh was then 95 my mother 85 um they divide their time between Asheville North Carolina and New Orleans uh they were living in Asheville and I asked them you know if they wanted to go uh to all the Ole Miss games which uh we used to do as a kid, we go to a lot of them then, uh, and they were all for it. Um, so, uh, that was the 2013 season, the fall after the presidential. Um, so, uh, instead of running around the country trying to, to do politics and get someone elected president, uh, the focus of my life, uh, became, uh, what was happening with the Omas rebels every weekend. That's fantastic. And what was happening with your parents? Uh, and, you know, my parents, um, it was really interesting to spend that amount of time with them. Um, it, it, in many ways, uh, they had changed, I had changed, but in many ways, I think we hadn't. Um, it, it was, it was great. You know, my mother is a real force of nature in sort of a driving Miss Daisy way. Uh, she came to Ole Miss. Uh, from LSU to start a, a sorority here, the, a chapter of the sorority, the Kappa Kappa Gamma. Um, and, uh, you know, she's very uh, strong-willed, has opinions on everything. Um, and she and my father, I think, are, 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 are very different but well-matched. And my father um, is someone who, uh, you know, as Gore Vidal said, to be interesting, you have to be interested. And my father really has been interested in a a huge variety of subjects. Um, And he's maintained that passion. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Stuart Stevens and his new book, The Last Season, A Father, A Son, and A Lifetime of College Football.
lover's love A secret that my daddy said was just between us He said daddies don't just love their children every now and then It's a love without end, amen We're back, it's Lee Habib, it's Our American Stories And we're here talking to Stuart Stevens And this one's a great story. It's his new book, The Last Season, A Father, a Son, and a Lifetime of College Football. You did something unusual. What did you ask your parents to do? Where were they living at the time? And what was their reaction? Well, my parents, uh, you know, my father was then 95, my mother 85. Um, They divide their time between Asheville, North Carolina, and New Orleans. Uh, They were living in Asheville. And I asked them, you know, if they wanted to go uh, to all the Ole Miss games which uh, we used to do as a kid. we go to a lot of them then. Uh, and they were all for it. Um, so uh, that was the 2013 season, the fall after the presidential. Um, so uh, instead of running around the country trying to, to do politics and get someone elected president, uh, the focus of my life uh, became uh, what was happening with the Ole Miss Rebels every weekend. That's fantastic. And what was happening with your parents? Uh, and, you know, my parents, um, it was really interesting to spend that amount of time with them. Um, it, it, in many ways, uh, they had changed. I had changed. But in many ways, I think we hadn't. Um, it, it, was, it was great. You know, my mother is a real force of nature in sort of a driving Miss Daisy way. Uh, she came to Ole Miss uh, from LSU to start a, a sorority here, a, a chapter of the sorority, the Kappa Kappa Gamma. Um, and, uh, you know, she's very uh, strong-willed, has opinions on everything. Um, and she and my father, I think, are, 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 are very different but well-matched. And my father um, is someone who, uh, you know, as Gore Vidal said, to be interesting, you have to be interested. And my father really has been interested in uh, a, a huge variety of subjects. Um, and he's maintained that passion. Um, and he started this uh, law firm with his college roommate uh, from Ole Miss uh, that has gone on to become, you know, this great success, biggest law firm in the state. And uh, that, I think, really is not what has given him the most pleasure. And that's one of the things that we talked about a lot. Um, for him, I think it was very much family. And that sort of a subject that, that I really was curious about. What was it in his life that it, he felt was the most gratifying? Well, that's a question I asked my dad. You know, you had, you had gone through a period here where you had indicated that your dad was the kind of guy who didn't want to tell you where to go. He didn't want to tell you what to do. And in some respects, like a lot of us who go on a track and, and, and have success, especially those of us who have some really good fathers, uh, what did you do about that relationship with your dad? How much time did you spend with your dad? Was it enough? Did you reflect back and think maybe it should have been more after this loss? Yeah, you know, when I grew up in Mississippi, which is the 60s, early 70s, um, there really was a sense that Mississippi then was, uh, as the expression was, behind the Magnolia Curtain. And uh, I, like so many of us, really wanted to uh, succeed, to prove something to my dad, um, who I looked up to so much. And that meant to me to succeed outside of Mississippi because it seemed that there was something uh, that would not be successful enough even if I was successful in Mississippi. Um, 
So I, I left Mississippi when I went away to college, and then I, I went to New York, and it drove me to, you know, dual careers in writing and politics. When I lived in New York, I, I think I lived there 10 years before I knew anyone who wasn't from Mississippi. <laughs> I mean, there was a whole expat community there. You bet. Um, and, you know, these very driven in a lot of different ways, uh, different communities. Um, and one of the things I, I came to realize as I was spending time with my, my father in that fall of 2013 is I think he could have cared less what I did. Right. Uh, as long as I was happy. You know, he never, uh, never encouraged me to continue in the law firm. Um, he had been a lawyer. My grandfather had been a lawyer. My great grandfather on both sides of my family never said, you know, you should go to law school or anything. And, and I think, um, on some level, uh, he was troubled that I was too driven or too, uh, much in a hurry and that I hadn't sort of, uh, stopped enough along the way to, to try to enjoy things. Um, and, and at the time I thought that when he would express that, I never really heard that. I, I heard it, but it didn't really sink in. Um, and I thought it was sort of like, you know, uh, somebody telling uh, a kid who's playing football, well, be careful. But I think he really meant it. Um, and and I, I, in retrospect, uh, I, I wish I had heard that sooner. The, uh, the book is a, is a book that goes back and forth in time. And I get jettisoned to 1962, a year here in Oxford and Mississippi and across the South, in which integration is, a, is, a, is actually a burning issue and a live issue. And at the same time, Ole Miss is experiencing its greatest football season in history. And I learned early on here that you and your family had your own bootlegger. Yes. Yeah, and, that was, and that was for what? And that's pretty interesting. Tell me about that. Well, you know, 1962 was an extraordinary year for the country. Uh, but in Mississippi, it has special resonance. Um, uh, it was the year that the last national championship year, which when I was 10 years old, was my great preoccupation. Um, but it was uh, the year that the courts integrated uh, Ole Miss and the terrible riots uh, where two were killed. It's really amazing to think about now when you go to these games. And, and I think of this often uh, when I was uh, uh, during that season. Uh, the Grove now is the center of, you know, the greatest pregame festivities, uh, college football in America. Yep. That is where they had the riots in 62 right there. It's also where the... Uh, in 1861, where the University Grays mustered out, uh, where all of the university students but three who were uh, too ill volunteered to go fight uh, uh, the Civil War and then uh, led Pickett's charge with 85% casualties. And now when you go and you see the, the uh, team march through the Grove on their home games, as they will tomorrow, um, and the team looks a lot more like Mississippi now. No doubt. As does the Grove, uh, and it's we're not we're not home yet, but I I think that I have to really credit the university for trying to come to grips with a lot of this, and you know moving forward while looking backwards and not trying to hide this. Um, there's no clear cut path how to do this. Uh, I think you just have to ask tough questions and and listen and work your way through this. Um, and I think the, I think the university, to its credit, has really really struggled with this and uh, come out in a very 
much, much better place. Well, I can tell you, Stuart, as a transplanted Yankee, that the North still hasn't actually come to grips or struggled with many of the things that many towns like Oxford mm-hmm. actually struggled with decades ago and are still actually thinking about and talking about. Mm-hmm. And you'll go to places in New Jersey, as we talked about before we started this interview, or Long Island, where you have some of the most racially segregated parts of this country. It was a shocker for this transplant to come down and see how white people and black people did actually get along and how their lives intersected in a variety of ways. Talk a little about that as you went up to the North and some of your experience as a Southern transplant in a place like New York City. It's very different. Um, in, in the South, I think that there is a realization that um, this is something that we must address, that it, uh, be it the history of the Civil War, be it the fact that, uh, you know, Mississippi, uh, our, our, our population is so much black and white. Um, and that everywhere, uh, our, our communities are, uh, dependent on each other so much. Um, and that we, we address this, I think, you know, in the seventies, our schools were integrated and, um, it, it was a traumatic time. And yet everyone who's my age has a story of what happened to their high school and now how it's gone. Some were more successful than others. Um, but it's it's something we've lived, and I think we feel that it's it's not something we can ignore. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Stuart Stevens and his new book, The Last Season, A Father, A Son, and A Lifetime of College Football. It's Lee Habib, Our American Stories, and we're here talking to Stuart Stevens. And this one's a great story. It's his new book, The Last Season, A Father, A Son, and a Lifetime of College Football. Stuart grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. He's worked in many political campaigns in the United States and abroad, including Mitt Romney's loss in 2012. The author of five previous books, he has also written extensively for television, including Northern Exposure. His writing has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Esquire, and the Atlantic, among others. He is a columnist for the Daily Beast. Let's get back to the book. You write yeah. about the comfort of the quiet moments with your dad mm. in, this, in this year on the road. Uh, he didn't ever need to say anything to make an impact is one of the things that I sort of came mm-hmm. across. You talked about that a little bit, but as you were spending all this time with your dad, uh, how did those moments go about when there wasn't a lot of conversation? What was that like to just be, well, be know, with them and spend that time with yeah, them? You know, I, I think that um, fathers and sons, mothers, daughters, mother, kids and parents, if you can find something that you do where you can spend time together, where you can talk about everything without talking about anything, it's a very special sort of place to be. Um, and for my dad and I, that was football uh, all the time that we were growing up. I was growing up. Um, and we were very easy to go back to that. It, it, it's a sense of where the unsaid is often the most uh, profound, where you're sharing an emotion. 
you know, one of the things when we started out in this, I didn't know if, you know, we go to a couple of games and uh, kind of that's enough. Or if we go to the games and he really wouldn't be into that. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, man, he was into these games to the last play. Um, and he knows a lot about football. He's a very good student of the game. And uh, to this day, he can watch football and understand it in a way that I still don't. And I, I, I found it fascinating, you know, that, that he would still be explaining things to me and the way that he would watch things. Um, and, and that's, you know, I think that's pretty wonderful. It is. You know, you write about your mother's, mother's constant almost need to have to do things small and large mm-hmm. for your dad uh, in his old age. And you, you wrote this, and I think this goes to anybody who's in a caregiver situation or has family in a caregiver situation. You write, I'd come to realize the small and larger strains that my mother constantly faced helping my father. He had come to rely on her for almost everything. She did it all with grace, but it was unrelenting. For the first time, I found myself thinking I should spend at least part of the year near them so that I could help my mother. I promised myself that after this football season, I'd rearrange my life to help my parents more. But in the back of my mind, I wondered if I was just like an alcoholic telling himself that the next drink would be his last. Talk about that. So now you're going to ask me if I did rearrange my life. (laughs) Um, uh, I think I had another drink. Um, I can't really say that I have completely rearranged my life. Um, You know, um, I, but you know, you spend that amount of time, time with your, your parents. It's a very different structured time than visits. You know, one of the things that really hit me, you know, you go down for Thanksgiving, you go down for Christmas. There's always an entry and an exit date. Yep. And everything is sort of shaped by that. Choreographed. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, you know, you're going to arrive here and you're going to spend four days, you're going to spend five days. One of the things that was really different about this was a sense that there was not an exit day, that uh, there'd be another game, and there were the logistics of getting to that game, and there was a discussion of was it going to be a good game, a bad game. The week would be tainted by whether or not we had won or lost, um, which is, you know, a real fan's life. Um, But I I really got to see how uh, my parents lived together. And really how uh, my mother uh, helped my father um, and, and the ways in which he was dependent upon her now. Um, and it was very, it was very moving um, and, 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 and powerful. Um, well, to know your parents as a real adult as opposed to as a different. kid is very different. Very different. And, you know, we developed our own rituals. You know, we get up in the morning and then, you know, I had breakfast and we used to walk over to the student union. Uh, and, and that sort of pace uh, was so different uh, than what I was accustomed to. I mean, every fall of my life had been uh, defined by tracking poles and, and races uh, and, you know, uh, f- four cell phone battery days, uh, you know, and three or four plane rides a day for so many years that it, it was so great not to have to do that. That's great. Yeah, there's a story in here about you when you were in New Orleans and uh, a place your mom grew up and a place your parents owned an apartment in, and your dad says that he wants to do something different one day and uh, something he'd never done before. And so you took him to the World War II Museum. 
Talk about your dad, that museum, and that day. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, my dad uh, was an FBI agent. He went to Ole Miss uh, Law School, and then at the time, you know, all FBI agents were either accountants or lawyers. And he became an FBI, FBI agent. He was living in New York City trailing people. And to this day, he actually knows the New York City subway system better than anybody I know because <laughs> it basically hasn't changed since, like, 1941. Um, but And he could have stayed there. Uh, but he had uh, so many friends who uh, were in combat, um, you know, some getting killed, that he volunteered to go in the Navy um, and uh, then spent three years in the South Pacific. Um, and the World War II Museum, which is extraordinary, uh, successful uh, project, they have an oral history uh, element to it, where they're going around the country trying to get oral histories with World War II vets um, while they can. Uh, they had come to North Carolina and interviewed my father, and I'd never actually heard this. Um, but as part of the book, I, I tracked this down, and they were very helpful, and I got the, the tape of it. And the fellow I was dealing with, he said, you know, have you listened to this? And I said, yeah, I have. He said, you realize, you know, your, your, your father did 28 D-Day landings in the South Pacific, which as far as we can tell, it's probably, we don't know anyone else who actually did more than that. And it was all a revelation. I mean, he never, he's one of those, like so many, you know, who never really talked about this. He had a couple of funny stories that he would tell about the war. Mm -hmm. Um, But nothing else. Um, And so we went to the museum and, you know, they uh, treat World War II vets there um, as they should, you know. I mean, they're they're, they're sort of... uh, honored guest, and uh, I guess they can tell that they're World War II vets by their age, and people, uh, we're, they have a special South Pacific uh, wing now, and we were in that, and my father was, they have a big map there, uh, this sort of digital interactive map of these different landings, and my father, you know, he's 28 of these, it was going through them, before he realized it, you know, he kind of drawn this crowd, uh that were sort of listening in amazement to him. Um, and, uh, you know, it was this, and, you know, this was, and, and, you know, for him, he still had these specifics of like how many ships they lost, you know, what the kamikazes were like here, what it was like. It's, it's really just extraordinary. And you um, knew, and you knew none of it. I, I didn't know any of it. No, he never would talk about well, it. Well, if you remember there, there was very little written about this until both studs Turkle in right. Chicago, he wrote The Good War through the oral histories. Right. And then Stephen Ambrose, who had had many historical books before then, but the one that was the success was the one where he actually got folks to open up. And then, of course, Tom Brokaw does The Greatest Generation. But I think right. Studs and, and the work of Stephen Ambrose led the way for finally this generation yeah. to tell the stories that, you know, I think the Vietnam generation was much more comfortable sharing their, their, their stories but World War II guys, my dad was a Korean War guy, never, not a peep, nothing. Really? No, never. Not his friends, he didn't serve, but his friends did. And none of them, to this day, when overseas, he wasn't overseas during the war, he was domestic. But none of his friends, when they get together, ever talk about it, ever. Well, you know, I, I, that's, there was a, a, a friend of my, my father's, close friend of our family's, who lived across the street. Um, and he, he had won the Medal of Honor as a Marine. I was never aware of this all the time growing up. 
And, you know, I, I learned of it later um, as an adult and, and uh, almost by chance. It's, it's just extraordinary. Well, that's what's extraordinary about this, folks. If you get it, that's extraordinary. That's what's extraordinary about this book, folks. And if you get a chance, uh, it's a it's a terrific read. It's called The Last Season, A Father, A Son, and a Lifetime of College Football. And that brings us to this this thing about football. I wanted to quote from the book as we come to an end of this interview. You write near the end, I was jealous of the athletes we'd spend the autumn watching who could lose one weekend and go out and redeem themselves with a victory the next. It wasn't like in presidential politics. Talk about that, because this ties your professional life yeah. and your personal life together. Yeah, no, um... You know, I, I came back to Mississippi and I worked on Thad Cochran's race last summer, and we won. Uh, it was a very tough primary. And someone asked, "What well, do you feel any redemption after Thad, after winning this, after the Mitt Romney's race? And I said, absolutely none, because nothing undoes losing. You know, you lost a presidential race, which means that this person who you feel would be a much better president is not president. And there is nothing that will undo that. And... Um, I, I, that's with you. You have to process it. Um, and you can win a race uh, four years from now, but it won't change that. Stuart, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a real treat.